I haven't been essentially bit by the recession bug yet. I know it's going to happen, but say it would happen, we would have a repeat of last year where like the S&P 500 and most of the market was down 15 to 20%. Our investment strategy didn't change. The only thing that changed was our mindset, I would say, is while it is tough seeing your account balance drop by five figures you know, every week, at the same time when we were still investing every month and we disputed as we're getting more shares for a cheaper price because our current um, perception on the companies we're invested or the market itself hadn't changed. It was just the psychological the psychological aspect of what was driving the market. We had faith that when we needed the money in 10, 20 years, that the market would have more than enough time to recoup. So we weren't worried about selling anything. And actually, I don't think we sold anything during last year while the market went down. We just bought every month. Don't be afraid to, you know, ask questions or listen to someone or get advice from someone whose strategy is completely different from your own because it may change your perspective. Welcome millionaires and future millionaires. You're listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, the show where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their portfolio allocation. Now to your host, Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires Mill Podcast. This is episode number 297. Stace, how's it going? What's going on in your world? I think I've had a less exciting week than you. What's going on in your world is the real question. Well, we did celebrate nine years this last week, which was great. So happy late anniversary to the public in, in the public's eye, which was exciting. But yeah, I, I spent this last week golfing with my dad and playing basketball at a at a fantasy camp so yeah it's been a pretty phenomenal week and you held down the fort like a champ so definitely appreciate that but uh yeah it's been something that's been on my bucket list for quite a while this week probably since before i knew you actually come to think of it so yeah i had a great great time and uh met a lot of cool people and and uh so crazy stuff this week. I guess a couple things. One is summer travel has kicked off. And this year, even with what seems to be kind of a recession pending, I don't really know how to quantify that right now, but the, uh, the, the expectation is such that travel, summer travel specifically, and American spending on summer travel expected to break records. The average household is ex- expected to spend oh, almost $3,000 on, on their summer vacation. So be interesting to kind of see how that takes place and where and do people scale back. seems like with the recent jobs reports, things are, are still pretty strong, but uh, we continue to see some rate increases and hints of maybe another. So, uh, yeah, something to pay attention to. And then, of course, you know, Biden uh, signed, a, or I guess avoided, catastrophic default, default I should say, and uh, increased our, 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 our debt ceiling. So some interesting things on the macro level in the economy going on. And uh, I feel like it's been kind of this wait-and-see game for quite a while here, but... Do you see in some places things starting to to slow down and and you know, I, who knows what impact or effect that'll have, you know, in the short term and long term? So I know Stace is probably like snoring over there when I start talking about macroeconomics, but uh, at any rate, it it, <laughs> it does affect. I'm here all for of us. it. Hey, you're here for it. Is your hey? You took an economics class in college, right? Sure did. Econ one ten. Thank you. Awesome. So, but you're part of summer travel spend. So we, uh, although this is, I think this is probably one of the first years we just really kind of have one, one little thing planned, but, uh, I guess we did our beach trip, you know, weekend beach trip already, but normally have, I feel like we normally have more than one vacation, but this year kind of, kind of laying low in that regard. So at any rate, Jason, what? Here's an econ question for you. 
What? Why don't you explain to our listeners what the impact, potential impact could be on raising the debt ceiling? I feel like this is something we have heard pretty much every year that I can remember recently that the debt ceiling continues to be raised. So what is the impact of that? Why do we just keep raising it? Why don't we change things? Tell us from your perspective. That is a question that is far and above my head. I'm not a politician. I'm not an economist. So take this with a grain of salt. But I will say that typically it seems that the the kick the can down the road attitude is kind of been something that we've done as a country for a long time. And it's never been something that we've really addressed seriously, I guess, is is the best way to put it. Now, we will see how this, you know, plays out. I mean, we continually just print money, create money. I mean, you look at the evolution of, and, and I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but you you look at the evolution of, of currency and where things have come from, where they were in the last, say, 50 years to where they are today. It's just, I mean, it's wild. And that's why you have probably quite a few of these people out there that, that are strong believers in, you know, decentralized type of currency and exchange and, and Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and other things like that. But I think that's a great question that did you pose? And I think it's it's very deep. There's probably a lot of opinions on it. I don't think there's one 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 particular answer, but at the end of the day, that is something that is very much up to the the leaders of our country and and the politicians, elected officials, and and how they address these things and what they do, you know, as far as the budget and budget cuts and and you know spending and deficits and all that kind of fun stuff that uh, yeah we won't we won't get that deep in the weeds on. <laughs> But, okay, but I will say this, that yeah. the debt limit has been raised 78 times since 1960. Yep, that's that's crazy, right? We're talking a couple times on average per year, I guess, right? So, I'm I'm feeling like I'm feeling like this is an ongoing problem. It definitely is, in my opinion. That's that's why I say I, I feel like it's just a, a kick of the can down the road to be addressed at a TBD later date. <laughs> so TBD on that one, but good question. Wanted to read a review this week that we got. Really good one, actually. From uh, This comes from Haas987. Interesting real-world insights. This podcast is unique and interesting. So many others try to convey the same lessons about saving and investing. This podcast brings you real-world approaches implemented by a diversity of people with different careers, salaries, and approaches. It keeps the listener interested as every episode is different and every guest has been successful implementing their own unique approach toward building wealth. The lightning round of questions at the end is always fun to hear the responses. Great job, podcasters. Thanks for that. Once again, we'd love uh, more ratings and reviews from from all of you. Continues to help us grow the show, and it's a nice thank you to those that uh, do come and volunteer to, to to be a part of it. If you'd like to be on the show, send us an email, millionairesunveiled at gmail.com, and we'll get you on the calendar, get you scheduled, and go from there. So today, we have Eric. He's in the military. He's a lingu- he speaks several languages. He's a lingu- linguistics major so we get into that that discussion with him it's pretty remarkable all the languages that he's learned some of the hardest languages in the world is a net worth of 1.2 million dollars is a paid for house worth about five hundred and fifty thousand dollars roth accounts upwards of three hundred thousand dollars in traditional uh, in the neighborhood of sixty thousand dollars he's got another hundred fifty thousand dollars in a brokerage account with some stocks keeps a little bit in cash and then he's got some uh, money uh, in some jewelry and some precious metals. He has no debt and does not use credit cards. So we get into discussion with him about all those kind of details and what his plans are for the future. Last week we had Kevin, his net worth $3.5 million. He worked 
uh, in the CPG space and has been a W-2 employee or his whole career. So without any further delay, let's get into the episode with Eric. Eric, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Sure. My name is Eric. I'm currently active duty in the Air Force. I've been enlisted for the last 16 years. I work as a language analyst. I'm currently stationed down in Georgia. And as far as like an educational background, I have a bachelor's degree in linguistics. And with I'm married and I have two kids. No, that's awesome. So, and, and what is your net worth today? Um, my current net worth is right around 1.2 million. Okay. And how is that broken up? Well, it's pretty simple in my, in, in my opinion. I have about 540,000 in equity in my house. I have between Roths, between Roth TSP 401ks and IRAs, I'm sitting in at roughly 290-ish. In traditional TSP, I have roughly 60,000. I have just over 150 in a brokerage account and individual stocks. I have little in cash, roughly about 20 or so thousand. And then the rest of it is in various assets like precious metals, jewelry, et cetera. And that's probably about 150 to 200,000. Wow. So let's let's dive in this a little bit. So that the home equity, is the house paid for? Yes, I have zero debt. Wow. When did you decide to pay off the house? <laughs> well, this is my second house. I bought my first house when I was 21 and it was the starter house. It was a little three bedroom, two bedroom house down in Georgia. And I bought that before I met my wife. And we, around our eight year mark of being married, we decided that we wanted to get something a little bigger, try to convince like the in-laws to spend more time in the South with us since they live like a thousand miles away. So we decided to have a bigger house built that had plenty of room for all the family to move in. But as my wife and I started our financial journey, our goal was by the time our kids were born to have absolutely zero debt. That way it would alleviate any future stressors as we started to raise a family. So I think we paid off the first house a few weeks before my son was born in um, October, 2017. And then we bought the new house for cash. Wow. So paying off that house, I mean, were you putting all of your extra income into paying off that house? Did you, did you sacrifice, you know, eating out and all these other kinds of things that, that people think of when they pay off their house? The first house, not really. Like it kind of was like our lifestyle. When my wife and I first got together, we kind of had like the very important conversations about where we wanted to be in the future, when we wanted to retire, what our lifestyle was going to look like. And then we created a plan of what we needed to do to get there um, as far as how much we had to put aside each month to pay off debt in that case to how much we had to put aside towards investing. So early on from the very beginning of our marriage, we essentially stopped investing and concentrating all, all of our extra income to paying off like her student loans because she had a decent amount of student loans. And once we had those paid off, that was our only debt because we never had credit cards. Like even to this day, we neither one of us have a credit card. And so once the student loans were paid off, all we did was throw the money towards the house, but didn't take too long because our initial mortgage balance on that house was relatively small. It was only about $100,000. So once everything was paid off, we were able to adjust our expenditures to kind of throw all the extra income towards investing. But as far as like limiting ourselves, we, my wife and I would say we are frugal, but we appreciate like quality and we appreciate a lot of things that don't really require money per se. Like we're both really avid readers. We both like to spend a lot of time. So a lot of our hobbies don't really require a lot of money. So when you look at like the average person, what their miniature expenditures are like, I don't know, card, car notes, um, different streaming services and stuff like that. They add up. But for my wife and I, we haven't had cable and I don't know how long. And the only really streaming service we have is Netflix. So our expenditures each month are actually relatively low. So throughout the years, our income has increased and our lifestyle really hasn't because a very fundamental part of our like 
strategy when we we're trying to prepare for retirement was we could live within a we had we created a budget that you know worst case scenario we could survive off one of our incomes and as our error as our incomes increased it eventually changed to now our monthly expenses represent a very small percentage of our overall income like we roughly say between 70 and 80 percent of our take-home pay every month now Wow, that's awesome. So when you had that initial conversation about what type of lifestyle the two of you wanted, is this what you decided on? Yes. It didn't really take much convincing. My wife, I think, thought I was crazy a little bit because I grew up in a more, I would say, humble um, upbringing. My mom raised four of us by herself into I was almost in high school where she got remarried. So money was always a little tight. So she knew my adversity to debt. And she kind of like got on board really quickly. She thought I was, you know, had an ambitious goal to pay off her, the, her student loans and the house as quickly as we did. Cause we ended up paying like everything off. I think it was in like 24 months. And it was like between her, the, what was left on her car, her student loans and the house, it was like $250,000. And back then our income wasn't that substantial. So as the months progressed and we started making headway towards our goal. I think that it finally like clicked that like, I was serious and we are actually gonna achieve our goal. And what we put on paper wasn't just like a far-fetched dream that it actually eventually will become a reality. Uh, and in that same initial conversation, you, I think you mentioned that you talked about when you wanted to retire. Is that, did you guys come up with a, a date for that or a, a yeah. goal? Initially, um, our goal was to be able to retire, both of us, um, by the age of 50, not relying upon any income from any type of retirement plan or Social Security, just live on our own individual investments. And we came up with our magic number and what we had to put aside. And now that that number isn't so far off, our goals have just changed and not necessarily just taking care of ourselves to provide security for like the next generations within our family. So for that next generation, are you talking about, you know, leaving, leaving something behind for your kids? Oh yes. Like the initial conversation we had, we talked, we covered like all the facets as far as like, Hey, when we have kids, when you want to have kids, are we going to pay for their college or their education or their vehicles and whatnot like that? And initially I was completely against paying for um, my kids' education, right? I would, I fit, but, and my wife was very supportive of us paying for it if we were, had the means. And as soon as our kids are born, my wife and I essentially agreed that we will cover that expense because at that time, um, be, I'm sorry, at that time when the, our kids eventually reached college age, we knew that we would have the means to be able to fund whatever educational goals they have. That way they wouldn't have to leave school with any type of financial burden. I'm sorry, beyond educational, providing for them educa- um, for their education. We have also like discussed to make sure that our state is secure enough. That way, if something were to happen to us, they were taken care of and potentially even for our grandkids. Oh, wow. So even a couple generations out. Wow, mm-hmm. that's incredibly thoughtful. And and I'm, I'm really impressed with the conversation that you, the conversations that you and your wife had so early in your relationship, it sounds like. Communication is important and it's, well, it's, it's very important to my wife and I. So we just want to make sure that we were on the same page before we, you know, got too serious within our relationship. Eric, was this something that, that you had learned from somebody else or or did you just come up with... Hey, when I'm dating, when I get married, I want to have these serious conversations, you know, surrounding these things because these are important to me. No, um, I think I was raised, you know, in a pretty average home environment where money really wasn't talked about because I saw the struggles that my my mom went through where the hours that she had to work to provide for me and my brothers and sisters. So beyond just making sure that there's enough to put food on the table and pay the bills. So you, you had somewhere to like live. There wasn't really any educational edu- or sorry, financial education that was levied upon me, especially not in school. I would say majority of my financial education has come from personal reading and 
you know, develop me, developing my own mindset and my own goals and strategy as far as what I need to do to get where I want to be. Where did that desire come from? I would say early on, like when I was real little, I saw the amount of stress that finances and a paycheck had on my mom when she was raising us. And I guess that kind of like motivate me to become educated so that if I was ever had opportunity to provide for myself and my family that I could and an opportunity to eliminate that element of stress, I would do whatever I could. So I would say that was essentially my motiv- motivation because now, because I did that research, my wife and I had those conversations and we put into action the necessary steps to achieve our goal of financial independence. Money has never been a stressor within our relationship, and hopefully it's never a stressor for my kids. One question I want to, or one topic I want to go back to just real quick is that that first house that you bought, how much was that original mortgage? So my, I bought my first house, let's see, it was, I can't remember if I was 20 or 21, it was 124900 was the what I took out for the loan for that, and that's the only loan that, that I can remember I've ever taken out in my life. So you got a pretty substantial chunk and equity increase on that house that you rolled into the next one, or did you save up quite a bit of cash or a combination of both? Kind of, actually, I would say a combination. My equity in that house, yeah, I paid it off, but I actually sold it before the market went crazy. So when I sold it, I sold that one for, or my wife and I sold it for 195900 and sorry, as we proceed, when I say I, I mean my wife and I, so it's like the I, but in a single form of the we. <laughs> it's because she's been involved in every single step of all of these financial decisions. And so we had essentially half of what our new house cost, because when I bought my new house, or when we when we built the new house, I think it came out to about a, just over 400. It was like 406, 407 what that cost. But... When we paid off the last house in October, November 2017, all that extra income that we had each month, we started throwing towards our retirement and our after-tax brokerage account. And we kind of used that as a buffer. And it just so happened while we were searching, because we couldn't find a house that you know we liked or we couldn't win a bid on the house because we kept on getting our offers rejected. That time in the stock market, uh, a couple of our individual investments actually really hit off and it threw us over the threshold. So we had the option to pay for the new house in cash, even if the other house didn't sell. Wow. So, I mean, as you're going through that decision-making process, was it the aversion to debt that really led you to, hey, I want to make sure that we buy this next one in cash or, or talk us through that mindset a little bit? Oh, once we paid off the last house and the student loans and we were 100% debt-free, my wife and I, we never had any attention to going back in debt. And so we were definitely, when we were looking for houses, we were looking for a house that suited our future needs, but was also within our available cash budget. So it just, that number fluctuated as far as what we were able to afford, essentially like week by week based upon some of our investments. So we still end up buying in, our, in the price range of what we were in, originally looking at, but we end up having a little extra cushion as far as our available funds. And then what did what was the price point that you purchased that next one at? I bought my the, uh, my current house at I think after all the fees and all that it came out at 406 or 407. Okay, so you've got another and, 100 100,000 in in equity gains in that since you bought yes, it. Yes, I bought it right before the market got crazy and and since then I live I'm the neighborhood I live in is still building homes and they just built my exact twin in my house minus some of the upgrades and they're selling it in my neighborhood for um 520 but the plot size is like half of my my house i live in one of the larger plots so my house right now is like i said it's probably around 540 to 550 is what the house is worth right now wow good for you and, and the money that you you had invested in the market is that mainly in in equities or you have some bonds or or what's the breakup there? So I have zero, um, but my wife and I, we have zero bonds. So as far as in the open market, we have, it's mostly mutual funds when it comes to the retirement accounts, the Roth IRAs, the TSPs, 
both the traditional and the Roth and the 401k. And then we have after-tax brokerage accounts that just mimic the stock market essentially. And then we have roughly half of our uh, brokerage account for after-tax funds and individual stocks right now. Okay. Do you plan to keep that going forward? Yes. I think that as we progress forward, the only change in our investment plan would be the percentage that's in our after our sorry our after tax brokerage account, because as with the start of each year, the first thing that my wife and I do is we max out all retirement accounts. So it's as of next week, I think it is my wife's four hundred one k will be maxed out for the year. I max out the Roth IRAs the first taxable or the first day of the year that we can, and then my TSP I'm limited to a certain percentage of my paycheck each month so that doesn't get maxed out to june and then once we max out all the retirement accounts then all of our extra money just goes into our after-tax brokerage account divided between the um, mutual funds and our individual stocks and how many individual stocks do you have we keep that actually pretty limited right now we only actually have one because uh, a couple of our stop losses got hit but we usually keep it to between three and six we usually don't sell that often, but whenever we buy, we usually establish the stop loss and we update as the price moves. But at the beginning of each year, I was actually at the end of each year, around like November, December, uh, we come up with a list of like six stocks that we're both interested in if we're looking to invest in something new that we currently aren't investing in. And then we individually rank our top three. And if we agree on a, a stock that's usually what we go to and if we disagree on any investments we go with whatever is more conservative interesting just for our listeners will you mm-hmm. elaborate on on what it means when when you refer to stop loss on yeah. those stocks so whenever we enter in any investment we discuss what we hope to see that stock do in the near future 24 to 36 months and what that what we hope that stock price is going to be at. But at the same time, we understand that there's risk in everything we do. So whenever we enter any investment, we also establish an exit price. And usually it's pretty conservative, I would say, but we usually establish the initial stop loss around 10% of whatever the initial price in which we enter uh, individual stock. And then if that individual stock share price tends to go up, we'll update it and we usually keep it pretty tight to the current price. That way, if something unexpected happens and I don't have my stocks open, we could exit our position and minimize our loss. Interesting. So the, the way you think about your investments now, you say, I know you said you'd max out from the beginning of the year, but you're also generating a significant amount of, of savings relative to your income. How do you think about allocation of your next dollars You know between all these different things other than, I mean, you got your house paid for, you got your retirement accounts maxed out. Where do things go at after that? And now that you've got this big flywheel going on, you know, where you've got this big base built up, what, what what's next? <laughs> That's always the question, what's next? And until my wife and I come up with like a solid plan forward, we like to continue on the current path. And like you said, we had, we like to have our bases covered and, make sure our future you know, retirement plans are fully funded first. That's why we do our retirement accounts first. And then we um, start to invest all the extra funds into the brokerage account. But my wife and I have had plenty of discussions and what is this money in that brokerage account that's for the after-tax dollars gonna be used for? Why are we putting the amount that we are into it? And we haven't come to a you know final decision yet. We've discussed the entrepreneurial route once I exit the military in four years to small business ownership. But one thing that my wife and I agree on at this point is we don't think we're going to get into real estate. Um, I have plenty of friends who make a decent living um, buying houses, becoming landlords and, and whatnot. But my wife and I, we have zero interest in going that route. We feel secure in our current strategy where we invest mostly in our mutual funds and then we have no more than 25 percent of our portfolio uh, allocated to an after-tax brokerage account well that's what the current rate is but we don't really know at this point what's next as far as 
if how we're going to branch out and deviate from our current investment strategy because right now our investment strategy is kind of like on autopilot at we essentially make two transfers a month with our money at the end of each month we either transfer money to our savings if we happen to have a large expenditure then a month that we buy and to replenish our emergency fund in cash or we transfer money into our brokerage account for every extra dollar so at the end of each month all of our accounts reset so essentially it takes all the thinking out of it and unless one of our stop losses gets hit or one of our individual stocks there it hits its our target share price and nothing significant changed and we just we have to discuss if we're going to exit that position or not eric how did you come to the conclusion that you were not interested in real estate as a investment vehicle so i love to read i read two to three books a week when i'm not in class and i like to explore everybody else's or sorry i like to explore different people's financial strategies and what's worked from them and it seems like almost every book i read everybody seems to have a decent percentage of their portfolio in real estate but one of the i forgot what book i read it's like invest in what you know and while i understand my own primary residency and what it requires out of me each month each year for that i don't understand the real estate market enough to fully take advantage of it in the manner which would bring me the most profit whereas i'm not saying i understand the stock market and individual stocks and playing that game because i don't day trade i don't sell options i don't sell puts and all that i just buy sh- shares and i hold them i understand that aspect enough where i feel comfortable and my wife feels comfortable with our money staying in there short term or long term we don't feel comfortable buying um investment properties at this point i guess that may be due to a lack of knowledge in that sector and we do read a lot to try to increase our our knowledge base in that area but right now we don't feel comfortable but you are comfortable picking your primary residences to yes. own. oh i have no we have no issue with that and i think if we were to venture into the um buying a couple of investment properties we would do okay but at the same time i think at this point in our life with my wife's career and my career and having two young kids at home I think it might be more of a headache as opposed to continuing along our current investment strategy and maintain our current portfolio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely a lot more work uh, from what I've heard. Um, so you mentioned the the buy and hold strategy. I'm curious how you think about that when you also think about the stop loss strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I'm I'm thinking of you know March 2020 when everything tanked. What what did you do in that scenario? So. Surprisingly enough, at that time, I all my our most of our money was just in mutual funds. I wasn't in individual stocks, and we actually were kind of liquid. Um, as far as a couple of other investments finally came to fruition, we exited them. So we actually were sitting pretty cash heavy at that point. And when we re-entered the market um, towards the end of the year and the next summer, we we're fortunate enough to enter into some of our holdings that actually very well profits and to enough to where they paid for our house. So I haven't been essentially bit by the recession bug yet. I know it's going to happen, but say it would happen, we would have a repeat of last year. We're like the S&P 500 and most of the market was down 15 to 20%. Our investment strategy didn't change. The only thing that changed was our mindset, I would say, is while it is tough seeing your account balance drop by five figures you know every week at the same time when we were still investing every month and we disputed as we're getting more shares for a cheaper price because our current um perception on the companies were invested or the market itself hadn't changed it was just the psychological the psychological aspect of what was driving the market we had faith that when we needed the money in 10 20 years that the market would have more than enough time to recoup so we weren't worried about selling anything and actually i don't think we sold anything during last year while the market went down we just bought every month yeah while well, you're in the the wealth accumulation phase it's pretty nice that you can buy it mm-hmm. uh, i i believe earlier you mentioned that you don't use credit cards did i hear that right uh, yes i get a lot of 
the topic of camera, uh, credit cards, I get a lot of flack from my coworkers. It, m neither my wife and I uh, have a credit card, and we have actually zero open lines of credit. So if we were to actually go for a loan, we would have to do probably a manually underwritten loan. But our philosophy and our financial strategy has always been if we can't pay for it in cash, we're not going to buy it. So that kind of like changes how we go about purchasing bigger items. And it makes us actually think, do we really need it or do we want it? Especially when it comes to vehicles and stuff like that. So do you think you'll continue that, that path of, you know, never, never having uh, a credit card or, or even short-term debt? Unless something dramatically changes, I don't foresee my wife and I ever having a credit card or opening any type of loan ever again. Okay. Like, like I know when I said like in the beginning, like when we first started off and got married, we were very risk adverse, right? But once we established our basis and we made sure we had our basic needs covered, right? We had a decent enough income where all of our, you know, housing, food needs were covered. And once we paid off the house, we decided to accept certain amounts of risk and that's, can be seen in our investment strategy, like when it comes to investing in individual stocks and some of the investments we make for our after-tax brokerage account. But we're okay with risk now because worst case scenario, if we were to make a bad decision and lose that part of an investment, our lives wouldn't change in the slightest. The only thing that would change is a number on a piece of paper would go down for a short period of time. So Eric, I want to dive a little bit into your career a little bit because I think it's it's been one a, a major engine in your success, but it's also extremely unique. So if you don't mind just ex expanding a little bit on on what you do and and maybe even how many languages you speak and and why you chose to go the military route after high school. Oh yeah, no problem. Uh, like I said, I'm a language analyst in the Air Force, which. Throughout my 16-year um, Air Force career, I've been fortunate enough to be given the opportunity to acquire multiple languages. So for the first decade of my career, I focused in the Middle East, and I started with Arabic, acquired some dialects. Then I switched to some European languages, Romance languages, and then the most recent part of my career, I finally switched over to Asia and picked up Mandarin Chinese. So throughout that career field, it's kind of limited. There's not many as opposed to like other career fields as far as the community size. But working in this type of environment where you're essentially are a student your whole career, because regardless if you finish your initial training in a new language set, you're always acquiring upgrade training and refresher school. And like you're all you have this mindset like ingrained in you that if you ever stop learning, you know, you're going to fall behind. And I think that's really like affected the manner in which I affect everything. Uh, I address everything else in my life, especially when it comes to finances. Like I am well aware that no matter how much I read and how much I soak in and absorb when it comes to personal finances or financial planning, that I'm never going to know enough or know everything that's out there. So my career is kind of like directing me down this path that I'm used to always being a student and i'm very receptive to acquiring new information well wow, it's pretty pretty remarkable to learn having learned a, a second language myself i know how hard that is and, and the languages you've learned are are, are are extremely difficult so at any rate thank you for your service in the military and 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 you know props to you for for learning those languages and and, and doing what you do so at this point, you've got everything paid off, not going into debt, real estate's probably off the table, going to continue to invest in the market, plans at some point to potentially move on from the military and, and retire to, from that, so to speak. I mean, where else do you go from here? Do you have a target net worth you're trying to, you know, get to or, or passive income or, or what, what, where does the, where do things head for you? So... As we look towards the future, my wife and I, we've actually had this conversation a couple months ago is updating our goals because when we initially had our, our conversation 10 years ago before we got married about where we wanted to be when we retired, that magical number was $2.3 million. And when we crossed into 
you know, the two comma club, um, almost two years ago, you know, that distant number of 2.3 million no longer seemed like it was too distant or so far away. And it was actually attainable in a lot shorter time frame than before we turned 50. So of course we upgraded and we adjusted our financial goals. And now what we're going to work towards is we would like to hit the $10 million mark before we're age 45 and proceed from there. But as far as our next goals, we've discussed, you know, how we're going to take our current capital or our current investment portfolio after I retire to use to bring more enjoyment or maybe alter career, our career choices. So, and the options are pretty wide ranging. For example, my wife, she's a pilot, but she works for a small aviation company and she has a very good job and she really enjoys flying. So now since we have a, a relatively good income and with relatively low expenses, all this money in our brokerage accounts, we've even discussed putting that aside, letting it accumulate to, so we can actually buy a plane that either for personal or, or private use, and maybe you know turning that into some type of business in the future. Or after I get out of the military in four years to essentially just change altogether. If my wife wanted to take on a different line of employment with a different company in a different part of the world, that is an option to us because I feel like the last 12 or so years that we've been together, our location of where we have lived has been dependent upon my career. And once I am retired, you know, I'm more than willing and I'll be happy to support my wife in any way she can as far as if she wants to change her employment, stop working at all or go into the aviation business herself. So I think right now we are just going to build up our after-tax brokerage account and our available cash funds to fund whatever that next step dip is. But we want to make sure that that bag that we're going to be drawing from, you know, is large enough to support any of our future goals. It seems like there could be a business where, where your wife does the flying and you do the translating and you go all right, all around the world. Oh, uh, so it sounds weird. And, but I don't think I'm going to use languages when I get out of the military. My, I know I've been told it's a waste by coworkers and family, but I enjoy learning languages for my own personal use. And I loved my job. I love my job, but when it's the time comes for me to leave my military service behind, I think I'm also going to leave that, that part of my job behind too. Whereas if I use languages, it's going to be for my own personal use and for travel, which is kind of ironic because I geared my career to make sure I had like the business languages covered. Because when you look at like the three most useful business languages in the world, it's Mandarin, Chinese, um, MSA, Arabic, and English. And my wife, I think she thinks I'll change my mind and go into the translation business. But at this point in my life, I don't know if that's going to be the route I follow. Okay, so I'm so curious. How long does it take you to learn a language? It depends. Every language in the eyes of the military requires a different amount of time to obtain basic proficiency, right? Where essentially you could be dropped off in that country and you could survive, right? You're not going to, you know, have a survive to the point of like a native college graduate, but you could survive, do whatever you need to do in that, that language. So, for example, romance languages, Spanish, French, German, the military, they're training, they usually give you about six months to learn the language. I know it sounds like a short period of time, but you're, that's your job. That's your life, you know, seven days a week, eight to 10 hours a day. For the Cat 4 languages or Cat 5 languages like Arabic and Chinese, you're given a year and a half. And, but that's just to obtain basic proficiency. Once you finish your formalized training, it's never ending. So when it, in the linguistic field, they say you have an active vocabulary and a passive vocabulary. An active vocabulary means that you could readily produce that a translation from whatever your native tongue into you, into the target language, which you're trying to translate into. Whereas a pa passive language is you may not be able to actually produce it, like translate a sentence verbatim, 
But if someone were to say the sentence or if you read that sentence, you'd be able to understand and translate it. So they say if you don't use your languages on a daily basis, you lose roughly 68 words of your active vocabulary daily. So in cases like me, where I have a few languages, the only way around it that I have done to like maintain my languages is all I do is read news and other languages on my free time. I don't usually read the news in English that much because I don't really have anyone to practice my languages with. So cool. So impressive. Uh, so thinking about your, your potential plane, uh, which sounds awesome, would you buy that in cash? Oh, of course. Like we actually we've been discussing buying a plane for the last few years for um, personal consumption, or sorry, for personal use and buy a little six-seater so we could tr- uh, fly and see family. And obviously the first one, the ones we're looking at were used and they go in the range between like 200 and 400,000. But it's not necessarily a need at this point. It's definitely a want, but we have arranged our finances that way if the need were to arise. That, and that was something that we decided we needed or we would buy it in cash. I don't think I would, even if we were to go and buy or try to get into the aviation business itself, it would be something that I would start from the ground. My wife and I would start from the ground up. I don't think we would go into debt for it. So I wonder when it will become a need. Uh, sometimes it feels like that since our family lives a thousand miles away. So we definitely drive a lot to see our family. I, If you ask me, my wife might have a different answer, but I think that we will probably have a plane of our own in the next five years. Well, we heard it here first. Can't wait to catch a ride. (laughs) The wife will be flying. She's the pilot. Awesome, Eric. Well, let's wrap up with some rapid fire questions. What's the most expensive pair of pants you've purchased? I would say $30, but my wife usually does all the shopping for clothes for me. (laughs) (laughs) What about the most expensive car that you've purchased? Uh, My wife's truck. My wife drives big trucks and so i bought her a new uh trail boss silverado so that was i don't know sticker was on it was over 60 so uh, somewhere in the mid 60s i would think okay what about the most expensive meal out that you paid for for just my wife and i for uh, for like the tab because usually when we go out i don't let like family pay so i my wife and i we bought dinner for like our whole family and I have a big family. So I would think that's probably six to $800. Okay. Wow. Nice. Uh, nice to go out to dinner with Eric. <laughs> what, uh, what's been the range of household income? When we first started, when my wife and I got married, I think we were making right around a hundred thousand a year. And now we bring home roughly 18 to 19,000 a month after taxes. Okay. And, and, and I guess if you're living on 80, 20 or so, you're what, spending two to $3,000 a month for, for living expenses? Right now, we, we um, roughly about, yeah, about three to 4000 right now. And majority of that's daycare. Okay. So four, 40 to 50 a year. How much of that is daycare? Yeah. You said a majority of it? Well, that's our largest expense. Like gotcha. right now, we pay roughly, I think, 1500 a month in daycare. And so that's our largest singular expense is daycare. Okay. And then we do, so I'd say food and utilities are only a few hundred dollars and gas. But I'm also, um, in that $4,000 average, I'm also including my property taxes for the year and our car insurance that we pay every six months. Okay. Just averages about four. Real quick, I just had a thought too. You probably have a pension as well, right? From the military? Yes. When I retire from the military, I'll get rough. If I get out my 20 year mark, I'll get 50% of my base pay, which is in today's dollars, roughly about 2,200 a month. So it's not spectacular, but it's forever though, right? Yes. It'll be forever. I mean, put a value on that. It's a few million bucks added to your net worth probably. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But when we came up with a retirement plan, we tried to come up with a number that didn't include any pensions because who know, I could have changed my mind earlier in my career and decided to get out or something yeah. could change in the future. That's fair. What do you think is the key to success? Patience. And like everybody thinks that if you create a plan and it's going to come to fruition in, you know, in no time at all, they fail to take into account the amount of hard work and time that 
it takes to actually, you know, come to fruition to achieve your goals. And so if a person has patience and perseverance to actually see that plan through, I think they'll be successful regardless of what their goals are, regardless of what their incomes are. Because once you establish a plan and you get into that mindset of where you want to be, therefore you adjust your actions so you could actually eventually get there. It's just a matter of time. So I would say patience. Okay. What has been the most fun that you have had with money? Who most fun I've had with money. Um, most of my hobbies are free. All right. This is probably not the um, answer that I would go with if I would have had more time to think about. But my son, he last year he was four years old. And he loves playing putt-putt. And he comes home one day from daycare and he's like, Dad, can you build me a putt-putt course? And I'm like, I could do that. So it wasn't a lot of money. So over the course of all of last year, I put money into our um, yard when it comes to like leveling, dumping um, yards upon yards of sand and soil and buying a a specific type of lawnmower and the materials needed so I could get my yard level and smooth so I could build them a pop-up course. So at the end of the last year, before the grass went dormant for about two months, we had a nine-hole pop-up course in our backyard for the neighborhood kids. And now it's something I think we're going to be doing year after year. I'm actually just getting the yard ready to build him a new course. I'm just waiting for my son to draw up this year's design. So in the big scheme of things, it didn't cost much. I think it was only two to $3,000 between all the material because I did all the labor myself. But for the amount of fun and you know satisfaction that it brought to my family and the neighborhood kids, I would probably say the pop-up course. Okay. What's been the biggest mistake that you've made with money? Oh, oh I see. That's biggest mistake I've made with money. I, one of the most financially irresponsible things, I think, if you look at my strategy, is buying new cars. I know you sh- there really isn't a need to buy a, you know, a $60,000 truck or a $30,000 car, but I do that. But I would say, hmm, I got back from overseas about a decade ago. So I go overseas for work, and the first thing I bought was, uh, I think it was like $4,000 watch. And... I think I only wear that watch like one or two times a year. So looking back at it, I thought it was a cool expense and I needed that watch, but now I look at it as just a waste of money. And you still have it? Yeah. Um, I'm probably, it's probably going to go to my son, but yeah, yeah, I still have the watch still works, but. And how much I was it? Really, I think it, at that time it was like 4,000. Okay. And become a family heirloom now? That'd be up to my son. <laughs> <laughs> Good deal. What's one last piece of advice that you would give somebody who's just beginning their journey? Hmm. One last piece of advice. Never stop reading because no matter what your personal opinion is on a topic, you could always be influenced by others. And don't be afraid to, you know, ask questions or listen to someone or get advice from someone whose strategy is completely different from your own because it may change your perspective. Awesome. That's Eric with a net worth of $1.2 million, probably a little bit more than that if we include the pension. Thanks for coming to the show today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Jace Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website, millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.